It's hard to believe that it's only five years since the publication of David Keenan's debut novel, This Is Memorial Device, a semi-fictitious oral history about the greatest band you've never heard of. Since then, at the average rate of a book a year, Keenan has taken us to Belfast at the height of the Troubles, to St. Petersburg, to the Siege of Khartoum and to a rock concert on the moon, to name but a few locations. Now, though, we're back to Airdrie, where it all began. Or perhaps better to say back before it all began, because Keenan's latest, Industry of Magic and Light, transports readers to a time when memorial device were a mere glint in the eye of Scottish avant-garde street culture. Told mainly through a catalogue of relics from the local 1960s countercultural scene, or as the small ad describes it, bunch of local hippie shit for sale, job lot, expressed narrowly, the novel tells the story of the purveyors of a revolutionary psychedelic light show. But of course, there's nothing narrow about David Keenan's books, and Industry of Magic and Light is no exception. Through this portrait of a band, we get to know a town, its inhabitants, their fascinations, their beliefs, their trips, and how it all hangs together, socially, culturally, and cosmically. Like all of Keenan's books, Industry of Magic and Light is a ferocious ride of a novel that demands to be read at least twice to get any kind of grasp, which is no burden at all given how much fun it is to spend time in his world. I'm so happy to be able to discuss it with David Keenan today. David, welcome back to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I'm so excited to be back here. I always enjoy our conversations so much. Yeah, wow. It's been so a little more than a year, I think, since we um, since we discussed Monument Maker. Wow. I mean, yeah, when you put when you did when the introduction, when you put all those books in the context of five years, I mean, and we have got no idea of the scale whatsoever. And when, you, when I think back, I'm like, wow, what a crazy five years it's really been. Mm-hmm. Well, just to, to give you an idea of the kind of the rate at which you're working, my first book came out in 2016 and my second will be coming out next year. So in in that bracket of time, wow. you've published five novels, one of them a quarter of a million wow. words long. So that's quite a, <laughs> quite a, quite a rate. <laughs> Yeah, wow, it really is. Um, so let's let's kind of dive straight into uh, industry of magic and light. Now, it has been kind of pitched, and I sort of talked about it almost as like a prequel to uh, this is memorial device. Um, but I want to sort of reassure our listeners that if they're new to your world, and I use the word uh, world very broadly because all of your books seem to kind of hang together in a bit of a a bit of a kind of a web, let's say. Um, it doesn't seem to me that you necessarily have to have read This Is Memorial Device to read Industry of Magic and Light. So would you be able to just talk a little bit about how this new novel fits into uh, into, into the world that you're you're creating? Well, one thing I would say is that all my books, as you kind of said there, Adam, all my books work together. In a way, I always thought that William Burroughs thing where William Burroughs kind of said all his books sort of take place in a slightly parallel universe. I totally feel that that's what happens with mine as well. All of my books link in. All of my books reference other books. And as I say, I think there's a subterranean beneath all of my mm. books that you can kind of access via wormholes, via um, mirrors, via um, slight quotes of text that I believe you can sort of jump through and appear at any other point in one of my books. But Industry of Magic and Light, as with all my other books, is completely standalone. It doesn't require any previous knowledge of any books whatsoever. It sits just before This Is Memorial Device. There are some characters from This Is mm-hmm. Memorial Device who turn up. doesn't matter if you've met them before or not. But yeah, as you said, what happens in the book, and I think I started to go back to this again and again with most of my books, is what happens in the books is people literally realise they're in the presence of magic. And they're in the presence of magic through belief, through taking art at its word. When they take it at its word, they take it seriously. And one of the arguments in all my books is it's somehow harder, but yet somehow more likely that you take art at its word if you are one removed from the cultural centres where it's being made. There's a certain naivety that that sort of rules out any kind of cynicism. When, when art is easy, when it's on your doorstep, then the kind of cynicism that you don't really, you take it for granted or you perhaps don't take its effect that seriously. So in Industry and Magic and Light, as I'm starting to realise perhaps with all of my books, um, a group of people start taking art and the psychedelic moment truly at its word. And in doing that, it does seem like they literally start to make magic to the point that people around them who were perhaps cynical about them, even the police who perhaps... Uh, persecuted them, even they start to believe that these hippies are onto something and maybe they can actually bring back they can reunite lost loves they can literally Mm. reanimate the dead perhaps, because again in all my books 
there are multiple explanations for what goes on. There's never one explanation. So these things in the books could genuinely be supernatural. They could genuinely be making magic. But you can read it in another way, where for, if you read the, all the various accounts, that people are reading a hell of a lot in there, what's happening? And there would be alternative, perhaps more rational explanations for what's going on. So I want to leave all these multiple mm. things there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important about that sort of um, being sort of maybe a little bit sort of adjacent to where people consider the sort of the centre of the art world is going on is really important to to your work. Um, and so here, as I said in the introduction, we are once again in Airdrie. So a small town, uh, a little bit uh, sort of maybe sort of 10 miles outside of Glasgow. Is my position in that right? Yeah, yeah about, about yeah. 14 or something like that. But yeah, roughly off to the east. Uh, and so what we this town we get to know is sort of it's slightly sort of decentered location, let's say, seems to be seems to be really important. Uh, likewise, it seems to be a town at the time where we're talking about that is on a period of transition. So um, at a moment you write, um, it was the final summer of the blast furnaces that first summer of love. So it seems to be the moment like this, this town is maybe going into an industrial decline when this other sort of culture this other sort of industry is blossoming yes and there's a i mean there's a really a, a beautiful moment that i like near the end of the first book at the, at the battle of Catherine park where everyone is attracted become starts to become attracted to the festival through the light the light in the sky mm. and they're driven from all of these small towns and previously the light in the sky was literally the light of industry now in an amazing moment when i researched that i found that the last summer when the blast furnaces operated in Coat Bridge, when you could literally see the sky lit up from Airdrie, was literally 1967. The summer mm -hmm. of love was the last summer of the blast furnaces in Coat Bridge. So it seemed incredibly poetic to have that moment and that the, in a way that the, you know, industry and magic might almost take the fire into their own hands. Mm. The, 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 the torch is literally passed. Or is it more like Prometheus and they steal the fire <laughs> and they turn the fire to sort of different means somehow. They put it to work. They put it to work in raising the dead. They put it in work, at, they put it to work as a portal that opens out onto literally alternative lives, other ways that your life could have been lived. You know, mm. yeah. So I love that that beautiful industry of magic and light. The industry of light somehow changes hands in that brief moment. And that, that's a really interesting idea as well. This kind of because a lot of your work sort of touches on this idea of kind of alchemical reactions in both the very sort of literal sense, but also let's say in a more sort of like uh, let's say cultural or or um, or social sense. And th there's a moment where um, the somebody is reflecting about kind of uh, contemporary. Well, more or less contemporary Adrian, they say kind of um there's uh there's no culture we're imprisoned in our homes in the gray of these fucking streets and what ha and what happened to working class avant-garde street culture where has that impulse been channeled and there's almost this sense which might seem slightly contradictory perhaps that sort of when this industry departed in some way it stripped something else from from the town as well which which has never been able to get back well, I think what it did, I think literally the hippies stepped into that gap and, and thought, no, we're the people who need to create this this culture or this industry or this rallying point, you know, in the in the towns and cities. Um, but one of the things that really inspired me about the book is to write the book as well is there's some incredible footage on YouTube of mm. the Glasgow um, sort of freak beat group, the Poets. And yeah. it's just a very brief colour film and they're playing live at Airdrie Town Hall and people uh -huh. are going Apeshit. Absolutely apeshit. And I mean, it gives me a shiver up my spine to think about it. It's unimaginable for any band to be playing the <laughs> almost at this point and get that kind of reaction. Certainly not uh -huh. a sort of psychedelic freak beat group or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just shows that, inc that incredible moment. I also think, I think the post-war generation really did have it the best. They really, really mm -hmm. did. You know, they came, there was a time where you're probably going to make more money than your parents did. You might even own your home. There was a concept of leisure time. The, not only that, the culture was incredible. The books, the records coming out. What a time to be alive. So I wanted to celebrate that as well and show how that transformed these working class towns ever so briefly as little mm -hmm. sights of, of, of joy. You know what I yeah, mean? Little, yeah, yeah. Light of, of genuine light breaking through. And, and what it's happened to that? It's, it's, not, it's not there anymore. 
It's it's funny you mentioned that clip um, because it put me in mind of something as well, which is something that I don't, I feel that we've lost and I don't quite know why and how we've lost it. Maybe we'll, we'll come on to that. But I remember a few years ago um, in Venice at the the, the Biennale, uh, Jeremy Della had his show in the British Pavilion. And one part of that were photos from the uh, Ziggy Stardust tour where Bowie and, and the Spiders were touring uh, like uh, probably similar places like Airdrie Town Hall, you know, this kind of uh, these kind of like kind of provincial British, you know, pavilion theatres and things like that. And there was something about this contrast between the sort of the let's say, yeah, the smallness and the provinciality and the kind of naiveness of the crowds yes. and like, you know, the young guys and girls at the end who were talking about it and what they were seeing on stage, was, which was just so utterly mind-blowing and there seems to be something of that in uh industry of magic and light that sort of in a way that sort of juxtaposition of the the sort of yeah the the, the smallness of small british town life and the vastness of the contact with art that uh, that these kids were having yes and de- that's it's totally what i'm all about that naivety is such a big thing i think that naivety is what allows you to take art at its word that lack of cynicism, that open to, and and, I've, and, I've, and it still exists. I mean, you know, I, I travel in Mexico quite a lot, and and mm. my books are fairly big in South and Central America, and and, and oh. what really struck me about that is that, 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 that especially the, the Mexican people that are around, um, they still have that naivety, and or, or, or what I would call is they they still have complete belief in the power of rock and roll to change mm. the world. They still have complete belief in, you know, it's hard, my friend um, Carlos Velazquez, the author there, he's a, a great friend of mine, and often he will write to me to get me to buy him an LP that he can't get in Mexico and post it over to him. And he, and he, he gets so excited and he cares so much, and I absolutely love that because I think culture is, it, it, you have to fight a bit harder for culture in Mexico. Mm. It's hard won, and so it means more. And also I think that's exactly the same case of what it was like in Erdre. It was hard won. It was hard one to, mm. to be a true believer, to even dress the way you would dress if you were into underground music, to try and live your life according to those ideas that art had given you. It was dangerous. That's why, you know, it's not easy being Iggy Pop and Eardry. This is where it all comes <laughs> from. And I kind of admire that level of belief even more because in, in, in my heart, I, I love DIY the most. Mm. I love people who care about their art so much that they have to get out there before it's even been rationalized. They don't even need permission they're pregnant with these energies and it goes right back to Shakespeare and Company and Ulysses as well. That was something that just had to come out. It wasn't going to wait for permission. It had to be done. Seizing that moment before it's even articulated what it is, getting the art out there. And I've always loved that. That's a DIY impulse. And again, I love people who have that such a belief in their art that they have to get it out and don't wait for the permission of someone else or the approval of anyone else. I love that. Yeah. It's funny you see your team DIY because that, I probably wrote that about ten times in my notes as I was uh, as I was going through this book, and it's sort of, I mean, it it is something that is so so present here. And again, like it's it's odd because we're in we're living in a time when, uh, you know, everyone is in possession with their smartphones or whatever of the kind of what should be we should be living in a kind of a massive kind of DIY culture sort of explosion, and yet there's something about that first sense of getting out there and doing it, whether it be like the hippies or moving into into the punk movement, which seems to sort of there seem to kind of channel this uh this energy and this belief. And also I guess this this idea that it didn't have to be going on in, let's say, London, for example, for for it to mean something. You know, it can be mm-hmm. going on in Airdrie or other towns around Scotland or or England and, you know, and, and still have um still have meaning. Well, I think one of the problems is no one is cut off anymore. Everyone has access mm-hmm. to the entire history of rock and roll or the entire history of literature. So it's very much about picking and choosing. People are very self-conscious when they make music and it tends to always reference other music now. But I think mm-hmm. being cut off, that's when the revolutionary moments happen, when you don't know what it's supposed to sound like. Literally, I mean, you know what everyone's supposed to sound like. You can Google anything you see in them. But when you're stranded in these little towns, reading the NME and maybe fantasizing about what this rec- all these records might sound yeah. like, you end up inevitably outstripping what the music sounds uh-huh. like. You go beyond it because you've no reference. You're you're literally so cut off. You're culturally stranded. That makes for true innovation for true believers. I almost think we're we're, we're too connected to really to be to, to make to be too, too connected to be cut off enough to make original mm-hmm. music. Yeah, and and then and then when something then does filter in, 
like from the outside or something like exotic. It can have this sort of completely transformative effect because of its kind of rareness. I mean, there's one thing you reference in the book, which is um, Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, you know, and this is sort of like, uh, you know, in fact, as something that sort of provoked this this uh, explosion in in DIY stuff, and like I love this idea of sort of you know this town, this sort of industrial town, getting along, and then maybe this idea, this book, or one or two other books, kind of make their way in, start getting passed around, and start shaping uh, the the culture in a very local sense. Yeah, I and mean, it's amazing. It's really. I, 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 it's like, and this is Memorial Device has the same thing in common, I think, in that it's all about the seditionary aspect of culture as well. If you can smuggle these things into these small towns, these t- towns are literally transformed by these things. And that's the whole ethos I, st- I started talking about early on, how like uh, art and culture and literature can be like a grenade, you know, can be something mm-hmm. that absolutely blows the world apart, completely turns things literally on their head. And that's exactly what happens in industry, I imagine, right? Everything is turned on its head, almost. Mm. I'd just like to talk a little bit about the sort of the, I don't know what you call it, the, the structure or the conceit of the book, which is sort of, as I said in the introduction, uh, particularly uh, part one or book one is is structured around uh, found objects. So the mm. um, the the writer sort of inherits this or you know, buys this kind of job lot, this closed off caravan. And the, the story is essentially constructed with him cataloging what he finds in that uh, in that caravan could you just talk a little bit about sort of how how it feels i guess to to sort of to write around objects in this way and, and does that connect to a little bit this sort of this diy culture that we were we were talking about earlier yeah it does i mean one of the big things for me and again i think this goes through a lot of my books is taking sort of cultural detritus seriously mm. And in a way, what I wanted to do is when I opened this caravan, I wanted it to be as serious and as profound as if you just unsealed an Egyptian tomb. Right. Everything inside that place you take completely seriously. In fact, you tiptoe into it in awe. And even an abandoned mm. packet of quavers, an abandoned packet of crisps somewhere, some bubble gum, you take that seriously too. Everything is a clue. Everything literally speaks of the times. And one of the big things I try to do in my books is I try to not do books that are about subjects. You know, I didn't want to write mm-hmm. a book about the 1960s. I literally wanted to transmit the 1960s. I literally wanted you to experience the 1960s, not something about the 1960s, which mm-hmm. is very key in terms of how I write. My whole thing is I don't describe, yet my prose is very visual. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how that works, but one of the ways I think it works is, is that with if you're... I, because I try not to describe, the reader is not often reading description. Now, mm-hmm. if you're re- if you're describing something and the reader is reading a description, well, you're not transmitting the thing in, in, in itself. You're writing yeah. a, dis- a, a description. So I always try to get beyond the description to present the things themselves. And I really think you can do that. I mean, a lot of things about industry and magic and like is there's a lot of time travel or, or parallel lives and things like that. But I also wanted to demonstrate that art can do that. Art can literally... Mm-hmm take you to this space. The 1960s or the, the, the dream of hippiedom is as alive now as it ever was because we're engaged with it at this moment. So I wanted it to be mm-hmm. like a sort of, uh, the, the, the caravan also doubles up as a sort of time machine as well somehow. Mm-hmm. Something out of time, like this tomb as well that has preserved this whole thing intact. And when you enter it, it's like you're literally stepping through the mirror, which happens again and again in industry and magic. Like you step through the mirror into this other universe, you know? Yeah. And I think um, one thing that that does as well is having this kind of this this sort of focus, particularly when talking about a time uh, which has become so sort of steeped in cliche, I guess, like, you know, when people think about the hippies, when people think about the 1960s, it's so easy to just like conjure up a hundred cliche images, whether that be sort of Haight-Ashbury, Woodstock, all this kind of stuff. And I think one of the ways that you manage to avoid that is by having kind of concrete objects on which to to which to tie it. So it's sort of like you know we have this 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 cultural movement, uh, which is producing these images and these images which will inform our idea of this culture, whatever we are now, sixty odd years later. But by tying it to physical objects, it stops it being kind of um, let's say overcome by this uh, this cliche interpretation of what the the hippie movement was. 
Yeah, totally. And I think one of the things is that I always focus on is I always focus on the micro history rather than the macro history. I want to see how ordinary people experience momentous cultural, political, and historical moments rather than the big, huge narratives. Again, it's very much a strategy I used in For the Good Times when. You know, Bobby Sands is in the background, but it's not about Bloody Sunday, the hunger strikes. It's about four kids growing up in Belfast and what that's really like. So, yeah, I wanted to avoid that. But also, um, I am a hippie. I mean, in my heart, I am a hippie. I still hold hippie values. The way I live my life is total hippie on so many levels. And um, <laughs> and I love it. I mean, I mean that's it's, it's truly transformative to me. It's the original... The original um, say, original DIY culture, and I mean, and one thing, people always say that, well, the happy dream failed, you know, the mm. utopia, the, it was a utopian dream that failed, but, I mean, I, I despise the idea of utopia, I think utopia is the idea that lies behind every circle of hell that humanity has ever put itself through, <laughs> so I'm, I'm in no way a utopian in, in any sense or form, but I don't believe that the happy project was utopian. I read this brilliant I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Charles Olson, and Charles Olson made yeah, this yeah. brilliant comment about the Aztecs, and he said that or the Mayans. He said the Mayans, um, through their art and their culture, it was a culture of no, a radical culture of non-improvement. And I was like, wow, mm. that is so brilliant. It was the, it was an art and culture that did not look to improve on reality, and that's exactly the ethos behind the hippies. The ethos behind the hippies for me was enough is enough. We have right in front of us enough to live by. We do not need to improve on this. You know, growing your own vegetables, building your own heart, making your own music, you know, all these things. We can do this together. And it was it was a sort of rejection, a line in the sand that said this is enough rather than this mm-hmm. constant utopian idea of improving and getting better and getting better. So um, that kind of blew my mind when I kind of thought of that. So all the way through with the ethos, I tried to think of it not as utopian, but as a culture of a radical culture of non-improvement. And I think a lot mm. of people still live in that ethos. I do too. There's many things in the modern world that I just don't engage with. Having a car, having a television, TV shows, uh, supermarkets, all these things. I mean, I'm just, newspapers, I'm cut off from all this. Like, I grow my own vegetables. I have a wooden heart. You know, I, I don't have a TV. I still have all these values, you know, that, that, that have come out of this culture. So yes, it's also, it's certainly a love letter to that culture as well, but it's a love mm-hmm. letter to saying this ethos, this culture is still alive. And it's still transforming yeah, yeah, yeah. lives. It's funny, you know, just as a, an aside, my, my guest on the podcast last week actually was the um, Canadian novelist Miriam Taves. And in her most recent book, Fight Night, there is um, the, the character, the grandmother and the, and the narrator, nine-year-old girl, they go to California to like spend some time with their family, who are a couple of the guys who are like a couple of old hippies. And again, it's funny because that also felt like a bit of a sort of redressment on this kind of, I guess, cynical attitude which has come up over the last maybe couple of decades towards the hippie movement of being kind of entirely dismissive of it of saying kind of like this was something that failed and saying like okay maybe in many respects you know it uh it didn't you know transpire how people said it might or how people but there are these values and the, uh, there are these ways of looking at the world which perhaps we should reconsider again now and also the anti-utopian thing is my whole thing is I don't want to change the world. I hate the mm-hmm. idea of the most important value is the world must be changed. I mean, if the only point of the moment lies in its overthrow, then then when do we ever arrive? You know. But my whole thing is I my, I don't want to change the world. But I always believe it will be small groups of people who mm-hmm. live by example that are the most interesting and important. The people that take art seriously, the people that take alternative lifestyles seriously and try to live it. The people, mm-hmm. like I say in Memorial Device, who can't read a novel without committing to it for life, that's always going to be a small group. And I think that's always a transform- transformative energy that I'm interested in. You know, what is it John mm-hmm. Cage says? Quit trying to change the world, you only make it worse. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, actually, because you mentioned, like, the post-war generation. And, like, this obviously this was the generation which, which kind of birthed the hippie movement. And it seemed also, we get this sense in, in Industry of Magic and Light, like this idea of sort of... Uh, you mentioned magic earlier. And this seemed to be the first time in probably many generations that the sort of Western youth culture or Western culture generally was sort of reintroduced to this idea of ancient magic. And one of the things I find really interesting about what you do with Industry of Magic and Light is kind of set this kind of old magic alongside new magic. So we have a kind of, let's say, the the new magic of uh, of 
LSD. You know, we have the new magic of uh, psychedelic music, of uh, psychedelic light shows, which we'll come on to in a minute. And then you have kind of the old magic of tarot, of cave art. And you sort of, I guess you draw the lines between uh, between these different, uh, yeah, these different types of magic, I guess. Yes, it's all about it's all about sort of use of ritual, and I think these things are cyclical. And I think like the old gods literally come back again and again, especially when they're needing that. There was certainly like an occult revival during the nineteen sixties, mm-hmm. and yeah, I do. I deliberately draw. I mean, John St. John, the detective, who's at first investigating the hippies, but then who starts to become convinced that they're making magic. He starts going to the library and reading about Goetia and tarot and demonology and all these things. He starts to think that perhaps magic is real. But one of the big things, again, this thing about it was a moment when we sort of stepped off that very Western mindset of uh, increased growth, of revelation or promise or utopia as always being up ahead as something that you have to work to achieve somehow. But the whole point of these rituals were to allow you to access the moment because the only Mm -hmm. place where enlightenment is possible is right now. No one's ever lived in the past, no one will ever live in the future. But one of the most difficult things is, is to penetrate the moment. So one of the happy things that I began to realise as a strategy for for opening up or entering the eternal now was a quality of attention. And I think one of the happy says that to John St. John, it's about paying attention. I didn't pay attention when I was younger, but when you pay attention, you see the magic, the, the, impossible, the impossible magic that is running everything that is happening right now. Mm-hmm which is nothing to do with you, which is nothing to do with um, an individual person somehow generating it. It's impossible and it's magic. And I think throughout mankind, uh, throughout civilization, we have had, we have come together for these sort of rituals that allow us to enter the moment and experience mm-hmm. the magic and now. And I think that's what the hippies are doing. It's the latest form of that magic, which is LSD, which is ritual. And then it has things in common. They use mirrors. I mean, that goes right back to scrying mirrors or, you know, John D using mirrors to, to speak to demons. And John D's mentioned mm-hmm. at some point as well. So yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a recurrence of these sort of archetypal things that come back and keep coming back. Yeah. And of course, uh, another another device which was used uh for to this purpose, which was I, th- I think first used just around the corner from the bookstore in the Beat Hotel, was uh, the Dream Machine. Uh, yeah, William Burroughs's kind of uh, spinning mirrors in was it in a birdcage? I can't remember exactly the uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the way this thing was constructed. I can't remember, but you're right. But in Industry of Magic and Light, yeah, they do make a dream machine out of a birdcage, which they bring back from Afghanistan as well. And so I've always like they take sort of DIY ethos with Burroughs and the hippies. Mm-hmm. It went even further than even just making your own art. It was experiment. It was permission to experiment on yourself. It was permission mm-hmm. to experiment with states of consciousness as well. You know, so when there's that, when you're liberated from all these things and you're allowed to actually work on the psyche, to work on the soul, the spirit, that's incredible as well. Really, that and what a moment. Two bodies are discovered in a flat next to Tollcross Park. Outside, there was a green Ford Mustang with fake plates. Only the bodies seemed to have spontaneously combusted and left the rest of the room comparatively untouched. All that is left of one body, it's a single leg. The two corpses lie in mounds next to the couch, as if they had simply slid off into ashes. Stinky ashes. A very particular stinky, Johnson John thinks to himself. The flat was being illegally sublet by a wide boy named Saul. The tenants, presumably the bodies, had given Saul false identification. They had rented the flat under the names Jan and Dean Berry. Well, that's a surf duo, the guy from Forensics says. What's a surf duo? John St. John asks him. Jan and Dean. Jan and Dean's a surf duo. No, John St. John attempts to clarify. I mean, what is a surf duo? Jan and Dean, the guy from Forensics says who at this moment is sliding a paper-thin section of human skin into a resealable bag, is an example of a surf duo. I don't know what a surf duo is, though, John St. John protests. Well, they are a duo 
that play surf music. What is surf music, though? Listen, you ever heard the pyramids? The pyramids? Baldies that play surf music, surf rock, surf instrumentals? No. Johnson Jones also never heard of the pyramids. So, it means instrumental music? No, not just. Listen, you must know the Beach Boys. No, Johnson John confesses. He's never heard of these Beach Boys. Okay, well, they kind of invented it. Surf music. Even though only one of them could surf. Do you have to surf to be a Beach Boy? Well, obviously not. But what is the definition of surf music? It's the sound that these bands had. Can you describe the sound? And here the guy from forensics has struck gold and he lets out a gasp as he slowly draws a single blackened tooth from the ash of a carbonated jaw. It's quite, uh, what's the word? Not strummy, but like, what's the word? Like, like a kind of fast tremolo sound on the guitars. What's the word? Johnson John shakes his head. He has no idea of the word. Is that an ear? Johnson John says. And he points to what looks like a charred fetus or a terrible fleshy shell. Yes, the guy from forensics says, an ear. Bravo, Detective Constable, he says. But the point is that this was music meant to accompany surfing and hanging out at the beach in California. Like a soundtrack to The Good Life. Now, one of the biggest groups were a duo, two guys named Jan and Dean. Well, what was the record? John St. John asks him. Oh, they had many records, many hits. Name me some of these hits, John St. John instructs him. Surf City. The guy from Forensics says, Drag City, Dead Man's Curve, I Found a Girl. How did they die, Jan and Dean? After Dead Man's Curve became a hit, Jan wrecked his car at Dead Man's Curve in Beverly Hills, the guy from Forensics explains, and ended up with serious brain damage. He died from a seizure years later. That's what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. John St. John says. The guy from Forensics is running a tiny little paintbrush along the edge of the fireplace in his white clothes, his tongue between his teeth, down on his hands and knees. He moves so delicately, like a painter. What's a tautology? The guy from Forensics asks John St. John, making the same point repeatedly, only using different words each time. Life is a tautology, the guy from Forensics says, and he holds up a little figment of eyelash. Is that one Jan and Dean as well? John St. John asks. Twangy, the guy from Forensics announces. That's the word I was looking for. Twangy. At, 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 at the heart of all this, I guess, in a way, as alongside probably a DIY, which I said I wrote about a dozen times <laughs> through my notes, <laughs> the word that kept coming back, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, given the title and given the subject matter, is light. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have written, all of your books have uh, so far sort of touched on music uh, in different ways. And this one, you know, is no exception. We get a lot of music. We get a lot of bads. You know, we as readers, particularly if we don't have your kind of encyclopedic knowledge, we kind of have to are constantly asking, is this a real band or is this something Keenan has uh, <laughs> has invented? No. Um, and yet, like the 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 driving force of this novel, let's say, it seemed to me at least, wasn't so much the music this time, but was light. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about how I guess this this concept became so central, both to the the group at the heart of the novel, like, you know, they are purveyors of light rather than purveyors of sound. And also, you know, how, how you see this concept of light sitting within the, within the novel. Well, I began to think of the white light, you know, the white light that people report and near death experiences, like entering Mm -hmm. the light, how how light is the first thing that is the, how, um, in so many cosmogenies, light is the first thing. Light is what literally gives birth. And so then I began to think through that are, in this case, if light is something that gives birth, is it possible that if light used ritually could literally birth things, could literally Mm -hmm. birth possibilities, could literally birth 
new lives. And so one of the things that's running, you know, when you finish a book, well, for me, certainly, it takes me a little while to work out what the book is about itself. Sure, and I often yeah. start to put things, the story together and, and see how it works here and there. And one of the things that running through Industry of Magic Light again and again is the idea of an attempted rescue. An attempted mm. rescue via light somehow. Again and again, you have um, Alan Cardona, who loses his girlfriend Susie in Afghanistan. Mm. That's an attempted rescue. You have John St. John, who loses his beautiful wife Carol and who longs to bring her back. And then in the second half, uncannily, you have two, uh, I didn't expect this to happen, two characters that are very <laughs> peripheral in, in, the, mm. in, the, in the first half. Um, and again, it's an attempted rescue because I think what happens in the second half as well is that um, the boxer has stepped through the light he seems mm-hmm. to almost be in the realm of the dead, a liminal zone between living and dead. Perhaps he's in a coma, which is kind of hinted at in the first part of the book. And he, again, realises he's in this liminal uh, place between the dead and, and the alive and attempts another rescue, a final rescue mm-hmm. of Susie. And again, he uses a sort of magical apparatus to sort of bring her back to life. And he uses a combination of this light that he steps in and out of when he becomes conscious or when he goes into the coma. But he also uses a tarot deck Again, a sort of traditional mm. form of magic for sort of uh, reifying yeah. spirits or ideas. And one of the things it's all about is possibility. For me, light, mm-hmm. again, the, being birthed in the light, is all about possibility. And one of the things that I always say about the tarot is, tarot, for me, is not um, predictive in any way. Charles Oakes has that great line about how whatever happens, this moment of time has the character of this moment of time. And that just seems like mm-hmm. a truism that everyone, no one, you couldn't really dispute that. And that says to me how tarot works because you're sort of reading the possibilities of the moment but the entire book is about reading the possibilities of the moment you know and using Mm -hmm. mirrors and light to make magic or to create a portal to another Mm -hmm. life and so it could even be just like rebirthed in the light did they literally step through it or are they just liberated to the point that they're able to live their authentic life at that point who knows you could explain all the weird things that happen the people that disappear uh, the bodies that are found you could explain it all in terms of well, their minds just blown and they ran away. But John St. John and Alan Cardona starts to think, no, they literally mm-hmm. stepped through the light. That was literally a portal and they stepped into. And the mirror also operates in terms of they, they, they constantly use mirrors. And the mirrors I began to think of as like um, every single person in the book is somehow learning to recognize themselves in the other and in, in mm. what they are not every single time. John St. John literally takes a mirror of himself the deformed woman who, who who mirrors his own deformed face, and he literally needs to step through that mirror into mm-hmm. love, into recognising himself as some, someone that's out there and not this individual ego or entity that's somehow in here. And that happens again and again through the book. Later on, the boxer, who's a very interesting character, I think, talks about finding yourself, even to the point of your own physical body and your relationship to the opponent. But what mm-hmm. he sort of means constantly is in your relationship to the other person, seeing yourself out there. And that's true empathy in a way. What they all learn through the book is they learn the sort of mirage of identity or how dangerous identity mm-hmm. is, of identifying yourself as not other things, identifying yourself as everything that, that, that everything that the world is not is you. And mm-hmm. it's such a sort of snare. You can never really fully move in the world when you have such a fixed identity of yourself that certain things are not you. That's not mm-hmm. sort of saying I'm, I would do. I'm not open to that. I don't like that type of person. All these type of things. Every one of them steps through the mirror of themselves into a much heightened identity in which they see mm-hmm. themselves and their fate is tied up with everything in front of them. Where even the boxer starts feeling the responsibility that he has the opportunity to rescue Susie and bring her back somehow. And and that thing, I guess, of sort of, of, kind of contrast and recognising what you're not within the subject of light is to sort of, if you are going to deal in light, if you are going to be kind of purveyors of light, then naturally you're going to have to in some way reckon with the darkness too. And it struck me when reading that uh, the character of Alan Cardona, who, I mean, it's your, your books never really have sort of protagonists in the uh, in the sort of traditional sense, but like let's say he is one of our one of the people with whom we spend the most time uh, in industry mm-hmm. of magic and light. And it struck me that he was. Uh, one character who was very clearly like he is one of the members of this uh, of this group. And it's almost like, you know, there was a time when uh, he had sort of left the light behind and in a sense made a trip into his own uh, into his own personal darkness, which uh, I guess, yeah, he never 
fully came back from. No, you're right. The, the, the trip to Afghanistan is absolutely his trip into the darkness. And he also blames himself for the loss or disappearance or death of Susie, which he never mm-hmm. gets to the bottom of himself, I don't think. Um, but it's very interesting at the end, I think at some point, and this relates to something that happened in Monument Maker, near the end, he's living on, he's living in this caravan, this caravan that we're, we find at the start. And the hippie, all the hippies have gone. He's still living in this allotment. They've moved mm-hmm. all the hippies out. He's living in this caravan at the point. But there's a rumour that he, become, he becomes involved with an ancient African sect called the Sun Watchers. Mm-hmm. Now they're in they're in Monument Maker during the Khartoum during the siege of Khartoum, mm-hmm. um, the Sun Watchers are there and they literally believe it's staring into the sun. There's some form of revelation, like there's a preternatural channel set up between you and the sun if you can stare right at it. And of course, he so he's back looking for that connection to the source to the light, but he's literally blinding himself by staring mm-hmm. into the sun. This is an idea I got from, you know, they say that the saxophonist Albert Ayler, you know, they found his body in um, East River in New York and near the end he had to become part of a sect called Sun Watchers as well. And he was going about with a, with a fur coat on, he was putting Vaseline on his face and he was staring at the sun, literally blinding himself. So that's the mm-hmm. fate. Yeah, Cardona literally blinds himself through trying to regain that connection with the sun. And that connection with the sun is also just the sort of um about creative powers. It's also about the mm-hmm. powers of youth. It's also what it is to be a young person and then to age and to lose that solar identity a little bit more. And it's tough. The process of aging mm-hmm. and letting go. One of the and I think like even the, the the main narrator at the start as well is um he's talking about letting go. He's talking about the experiences he had. He let go of his wife and children, he left his family, he had these affairs, he lived this moment fully as well. And now he's obviously writing from some kind of distance and he's kind of mourning the loss of his youth. Or the, or the morning mm-hmm. of his life, you know. There's a there's one one moment where um, a uh, uh, the 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 I think if I remember rightly, I've, I've, it's slightly uh, disconnected in my notes. But where the the guys from the 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 band from the from the group are being interviewed and they're asked about their um, their influences, um, and I, I wanted to kind of I wanted to get onto this because uh, funny you mentioned Ulysses earlier. Uh, one of the things that kept coming up when we were discussing Ulysses in this big project, which uh, of course you were a part of uh, earlier this year, mm-hmm. was how mm-hmm. Joyce had this kind of great leveling approach to art. And uh, it struck me when uh, reading a sort of industry of magic and light that you were coming from the very same place. So you know you it, you could reference the sort of the you know, the high culture, but also you could reference comic books and, mm-hmm. or rather, you know, and I don't want to talk about high culture and low culture because I think that's a bit of a sort of uh, an artificial distinction. But um, could we just talk a little bit about that sort of, uh, I guess that sort of that, that view of culture that uh, that informs you and informs the, the characters in your text? Well, one thing I've always liked about, I think certain areas of culture are, are, are relatively unpoliced culturally mm. unpoliced in a way and so i think you can kind of get away with a lot of stuff in what would be known more as like genre or popular culture than you sometimes can in a more highbrow culture i mean uh-huh. i think for example i mean i'm a huge fan of horror movies um and i think during from the 60s and 70s and the 80s i mean they were that was avant-garde cinema and it's absolutely mm-hmm. wildest the most visually yeah. stunning cinema that there really has ever been in a way and because they were sort of flying under the under the sort of critical radar a little bit yeah. you could get away with that you know and i always felt that when i was reading science fiction growing up and i was reading things like and i was never like into cyberpunk or any of the cool science fiction i like the old school <laughs> you know asimov and uh, arthur yeah. c clark who I, I completely utterly love and I, I began and i was into comics as well you know i'd get furry freak brothers and I would get Robert Crumb, and and it, again, it goes back to that seditionary thing. I felt that they were like, they were almost like Trojan horses. They were smuggling these mm-hmm. incredible ideas about what it is to be alive and what 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 is consciousness, what is the experience of consciousness, and in these books that you could, as a kid, you could get out of the library. And I've always mm-hmm. felt really, really, really true to that, and wanted to repay that as well. That I would like my books to have that sort of same sort of seditionary impact in a way, and that mm-hmm. they sneak in, they sneak in. And one thing. I think it's happened with the books that has been really gratifying for me is we've there's there's whole audiences, I have whole followers mm. or followings of my books that are not traditionally literary in any way. I mean, I have people who who love experimental fiction, they're into it, and that's good. And I get written, I get, I get written about by writers who I really enjoy reading. But on the other hand, I'm read by a whole bunch of people that 
don't follow the experimental fiction mm-hmm. particularly, and perhaps who weren't even really readers before they sort of discovered my stuff. And that's I think that's also partly because I position my own books pretty much in that same intersection between these, what, what you mentioned, high or popular culture, high culture, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's all things that I care about equally. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. like, well, if you're into like high energy rock and roll and you like psychedelic rock or you, you know, you like acid house or anything like that, you may experience those same energies somehow in my book because, I mean, I've always said that my writing expire, aspires to the feel of music, it aspires to, mm-hmm. to, to, to to sort of music. So I very much been, I very much use those those other cultural references to show that we have we have a sort of we have a shared gallery of images and ideas here that we're that we're bringing in. And if you're interested in this stuff, then there's plenty of ways in for you in a way. I think it's also because what we've done with White Rabbit, which has been really remarkable, and that we've opened up a lot of different channels for how our books get out there i mean i sell so many copies of my books in record stores as well you know which is which is which is fantastic that means so much to me i love that because again it reminds me when i would first read lester bangs and things like that and i would think well i enjoy lester bangs's music writing as much as i enjoy listening to lou reed so i would Mm hope that people could enjoy um industry and magic and light as much as they enjoy listening to Quicksilver Messenger Service or Lou Reed yeah. or even Acid House or even Acid House which is another moment another moment um, which stands alongside Memorial Device and the psychedelic moment another moment of cultural transformation when small working class towns were completely turned on their head through Acid House and one of the things that Lee Braxton always says about White Rabbit and which has been fascinating to me is that um, Acid House was always a big model was always a publishing mm-hmm. model for him. And one of the big things he would say was because we're all on the dance floor together. And uh-huh. I love that. And that is totally the vibe. And interestingly enough, we just got back from Ibiza where me and Lee did a White, a white Rabbit event at, um, at the Beat Hotel. And it was it it's was a beautiful. hard life, eh? Yeah, it's tough. It's real. I almost got <laughs> embarrassed tweeting pictures of us kicking back there. Um <laughs> Uh, but um, it was an amazing moment as well because to see that that coming together of these cultures and um, I mentioned to this early on, Adam, before we, we started recording, but mm-hmm. one of the most remarkable experiences in my life in the past five years has been to see men really mm-hmm. reading literature again and being yeah, enthusiastic yeah, yeah. about it and, and, and to discover a, a different type of masculinity according which seems to exist and certainly the people that follow me and have a crossover between Acid House, my friend Louis Andrew Weatherall, and somehow our, our, our audiences have, have all come together and it's see men being enthusiastic about um, literature, experimental literature. Mm-hmm. But not only that, to see the type of man that, that possibly came from Acid House as well, when you know these there was these are these tough guys who used to hang out in the football terraces who then took ecstasy and began dancing with each other and hugging each other. And, and I see that all the time. I mean, and I beat that so many men, tough, tough guys, working class guys, came up to me and hugged me and and said, thank you so much for your books, brother. It means so much. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been really, really quite amazing to see all that. And I really, it's, you know, I've always been interested in that myself. It's a lot of my books talk about masculinity and, and new ways mm-hmm. of dealing with masculinity. For the good times is certainly about that. And I was very lucky and that was brought up by a guy who was a tough, tough working class guy who couldn't read or write, but who was incredibly emotional and armoured and loving. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's been really amazing to see a version of that and the men that have been attracted to my books and the sort of culture that's, that's, that's sort of come around White Rabbit. Really, really amazing. And I think that also I comes wonder, down to your question. Yeah, your, your yeah. Question I wonder about how they involved in that culture. It's, it's also kind of... Um comes to this idea of kind of breaking free of the bounds that society puts on you, right? Like, you know, the, a lot of these guys were being brought up with this idea of, you know, it's that whole kind of boys don't cry, you know, you've got to be tough, yeah. you've got to be fighters. And then one thing that, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, ecstasy did for uh, a lot of these guys. And in a similar way, I guess, like, you would draw the link in your books. You could say art can do for people too, is yes. to kind of to show you a world beyond these bounds, to show it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to fit into this box that uh, that your class, that your culture has kind of pushed you into. It's totally true. I mean, I never bang on much about me being a working class writer or anything like that, because I'm really, again, I'm talking about identities. I really think identities mm-hmm. are an absolute dead end in some kind of way. But I do think that art, I think art can absolutely transform your life and point to the fact that mm-hmm. there are other ways of being. And the way another thing, I write all these books in gratitude for the way that art transformed my life. 
You know, I mean, I wouldn't be here in any way, shape or form if, I, if my mind earlier, early on hadn't been exposed to and been blown by radical music and mm-hmm. art and literature. But even more than that, to see people around me in the context that I lived doing that, that was amazing. It made me really think that the centre of the world is wherever you are, wherever you are. And this goes back to the whole DIY ethos as well. You realise that you're at the centre of the world when you start creating art. And you also, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I get this thing, and it's, I think it's so true, the older I get, the more I believe it, is that, you know, the universe really rewards attention. It likes mm-hmm. attention. And the more attention you give it, the more you sort of, the more it gives back. And so to me, yeah. the best thing you can possibly gift the world is art, is literature. You get you literally gift it back. And that becomes the redeeming, the way that you redeem your own life. We use stories to redeem. And I've got to this literal idea now where the whole Bible's idea is that you know Christ the Redeemer or God enters the world as logos, enters mm-hmm. the universe of the world as word to redeem it. Well, that's literally what happens. Words and language enter the world in order to allow us to give stories to our suffering or our difficulties and our joys and therefore to redeem it. So literally, everything that I've been doing in all my books becomes a sort of work of redemption, a work of redemption, of telling a story to say what was worthwhile, why was this great, and how did it transform people's lives. And just by doing that, you pass on the baton. Here's the book. Now have your mind blown. Now then you write your book that blows someone's mind. And somehow we perpetuate this culture. Somehow. These gifts. David, I, I I could go on speaking to you for hours, but that just does seem to me the perfect spot on which to uh, on which to leave uh, this Sorry. this conversation. Um, tell me, I bet there's another one coming next year, right, to continue this uh, this world building. There is. I'm not quite sure if yeah. it's going to be. It's, it's finished. It's finished. I'm not quite sure if it'll come out yes, it next year or the year after. But um, it, it's. It's kind of like the, the cycle of books that I've written. I believe there's mm-hmm. the cycles coming to an end and it's going to come to an end ah. with the next book, which which is called Paimon. And it's a sequel to Memorial Device, but it's also a sequel to Monument Maker. So it's sort of, uh-huh. nothing in my books ever tie up, but it sort of brings uh-huh. to an end the whole first sequence of all my books I've written over the past five years or so in a way which yeah. really feels like the end of something and the beginning of something else. Wow, cannot wait. Um, Industry of Magic and Light is, of course, available from from Shakespeare and Company. You can buy it from our store. You can buy it from our website uh, or you can buy it from your local indie bookstore, wherever wherever in the world you are. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. It's always an absolute pleasure. Great conversation. For me too, man. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.